Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, we have Patricia Vandesan, Corporate Director and Business Advisor, and most recently, EVP and CFO with Nexi Building Solutions on today's show. How are you doing, Patricia? I'm doing great, Oz. How are you? I'm doing awesome. So glad to see you. It's a beautiful day out here in sunny South Florida. So cannot complain. The weather is ideal. That's where I want to start. So I see that you're located in Calgary, Alberta. And I've had people from Toronto. I've been to Toronto. Love it. Been to Vancouver. Love it. We've had people from Montreal, but I've never had anybody from Calgary. So I'm interested. Have you been there your whole life? Have you recently moved there? How long have you been in Calgary? So Calgary, I haven't been there my entire life, but it is definitely qualifies as home base for me. I did a stint in Toronto. I worked in Vancouver. My last company, Nexi, was in Vancouver. And then I worked in Switzerland for a number of years. So I've got some good points of comparison. I will tell you my plug for Calgary. It's an amazing city. We have about 1.4 million people, which puts it really number four in terms of the size of Canadian cities. But that said, it actually has the most corporate head offices in all of Canada per city. I didn't know so that. So from a business perspective, You've got your low cost of livings, and then, oh my God, there's the mountains, which are an hour away, fantastic, and Oz, for your benefit, Calgary has the same number of sunshine hours as Florida does. Stop it. And that is a true statement. You go look that up. I'm not saying the temperature is the same. <laughs> the Calgary Board of Tourism had to put you up to this. Really? As much sunshine as Florida? Yeah, that is a true statement. Yes. Wow. So I haven't been there. If I go visit, what type of food should I get? What should I see? Do you have any kind of sites? I'm a big traveler, so I want to know. Yeah, so Calgary certainly is known for the stampede, good and bad, I think. It is definitely sort of a 10-day party where corporate Calgary really takes a bit of a pause and connects informally with their business counterparts. So there's a great buzz in the year at that time of year. And then I'd say, you know, the mountains are right. They're so close by. I literally can see them from my house, and that is a beautiful thing, and it's a great way to sort of unwind and decompress. I love it. So you totally sold me. Hold on. We need to cut to one of our sponsors, the Calgary yeah. Board of Tourism. <laughs> Visit Calgary. You're going to love it. That's amazing. So listen, you've had an incredible career. You've worked at a lot of different companies, but an area that you've seen to, to most recently at Nexi and, and throughout your career is clean tech. And I know that's something that is super important to you. We've been doing a lot of pods recently on entrepreneurs who are in the clean tech space. I'm really interested. I want to learn a little bit more. Is this something that you've always been passionate about? Has this been a recent phenomenon for you? Why do you think this is important? How did you find yourself getting into this professionally? So good question. I dabbled in it in different companies that I've been at. But before I joined Nexi, I really knew from just a fundamental values base that I really wanted to join a clean tech company. And whether this is a reflection of being a mom of two teens, whether it's a reflection of being older, I'm not sure, probably a combination of both. 
but I'm pretty passionate about it. And I genuinely think that there's kind of a sweet spot right now where there's a tremendous opportunity for creativity to solve a whole host of environmental problems. And I think there's also right now a huge opportunity to be financially rewarded for that. So I think it's really a good cross-section between sort of the altruistic save the environment and then financial reward. I love that. Let me ask you something because I'm a little bit of a layman in this space. It's something that obviously I care deeply about, but that's been more of a recent phenomenon. And I feel like there's been a lot of progress made over the last couple of years, opposed to obviously decades before, from a policy perspective, from a resource perspective, from just a cognizance perspective of people realizing how much of an urgent issue this is. Do you feel like there's been a lot of progress in the last couple of years, or is that just me kind of from the outside? I think there's been a fair bit of progress. I think there's also been certainly heightened awareness, whether yeah. that is through whatever you're watching on your local news station or international news station or what you're reading online. This is becoming a more prevalent problem. And I think the other component in there, which is I find is really interesting, Oz, is you have so many companies, so large, large companies that have come out and come forward publicly with a lot of really aggressive ESG targets without really a clear path on how to get there. So I think that, again, creates a really ripe opportunity for the entrepreneurs to come up with ways to solve those problems and, again, be financially rewarded for it. I love that. And like you said, there's a nexus right now of this like very important burning topic people are more cognizant of and people are doing more about just in general, but also this opportunity for entrepreneurs who are getting into the space. And so I know you spoke at a climate tech conference in January in Palm Springs, specifically around leaders in this space who are trying to scale their company because there's just so much opportunity right now. Tell us a little bit about that conference and then what the speaking engagement was like. Yeah, no, so it was a fantastic conference, though. It was North American-wide clean tech in Palm Springs in January this year. So I was invited to be panelists with the topic being how do you scale teams in a green tech or clean tech space put on and moderated by Corn Ferry Shelley Fest. And so it was a really good conversation and certainly some commonalities there on challenges people were seeing. And some of them, I think you could argue would be challenges that you would see in any type of industry. But I think the difference on the clean tech component, Oz, is you really have to live your values. Mm -hmm. Typically, people will come to a clean tech company because they are very values-based and walking the talk is critical, whether that be anything around the environment or more broadly the ESG space. So as a leadership team, you better deliver on what you're saying that you're doing there in terms of whether that's the culture of the organization or do you support time for people to volunteer or your ESG goals, people will leave if you don't deliver, if you're saying one thing and you're not delivering. So I think that is the number one difference between scaling in a clean tech and scaling outside of tech. I love that. And such fantastic advice. But I'm always thinking about things from a hiring perspective. Most of the entrepreneurs I've talked to in this space They said that you're way ahead of the game if you're bringing in somebody that's already passionate about this area, that they're engaged in this and they care deeply about it. Yet when you're scaling, you've got to hire en masse. And so I just wonder, how do those two things conflict, if at all? Do you find that there's a large populace of talented people across all these different functions who have this drive and passion to be in this space? Or is that something that you have to cast a different net or a wider net? Or help me understand that. 
Yeah. So the way I would think of it, Oz, is if you're going to join a clean tech company, you're largely doing that, I think, for the mission, vision, value. And with my finance hat on, as I said, I think there's also a good financial opportunity in there as well. So you're going to have a large group of the individuals that inherently are very passionate about what you're doing. And that's why they're there. So yep. if you can hire the right individual, they tend to be more sticky of a relationship yeah. because they can't just go get that at an opportunity that's dreamed, right? Yeah. And so that certainly is an advantage. Again, you've got to live that, but that becomes typically a stickier relationship. But in terms of how many scale and scale with sticky relationships, that's where I think you've really got to look at your balance between if you get too far ahead of your skis, and I've been there. I've been at companies where they have got too far ahead of your skis, and you've got to unfortunately go through some layoffs and walk that back, and that's nobody's desire. But at the same time, you also have to create, I think, a certain amount of tension in the organization that you really need that new role, and there inherently has to be some pressure that that is becoming a bottleneck. Now you know you legitimately need that, not now, not for the next two months, but for the next year and beyond. So I think it's really finding that balance between when you turn the taps on and recruit for a role versus where you look at other alternatives, such as bringing in a third party firm to say, look, we've got a short term gap and being able to plug it that way. I'm obviously partial to bringing in a third party firm. I really <laughs> appreciate that answer. Super fantastic. You're right. There's more stickiness there. And having people be engaged with your mission like that, I know firsthand, that's one of the most important things to getting great tenure, great engagement out of your people. And so if you're in that space, you're just going to have less attrition, less turnover, and hopefully you just continue to add to that pie over time. So I think that's fantastic. You most recently were with Nexi, as we've talked about, as the CFO. And I think you mentioned to me that it was the fastest growing Canadian unicorn in history. So that's crazy. So you got to tell me what it's like to be in an environment like that and what it was like day to day for you as the CFO. Yeah, so it's certainly an exciting ride. I've worked for companies for the last at least 10 years that are in the hyper growth space, transforming businesses, scaling. And so Nexi is my most recent journey down that path. The way I describe working at that kind of an organization is there's typically more work than normal. Yeah. There's more stress than normal. Okay. There is more professional growth than normal, and there's more opportunity than normal. So to put it simply, it's intense. It is intense. It's a double-edged sword with sort of effort and reward in there. So I think you really have to be, if somebody's contemplating taking that step, A, I would, I would recommend it, but I would say you've really got to be, I think, very clear with yourself on what you're looking for. And are you prepared for that level of intensity? People often underestimate that. Yeah. Really interesting to me because I think about as you scale, your culture probably comes about high growth and about meeting results and, and things like that. But I'm just wondering, how does that stress the culture or does that really inform the culture when a company is going through things like that? Was like prior to obviously going through this massive growth, the values they had at the beginning, were those the values that ended up being the case when they got up to that big multi-billion number, or was it something that evolved and changed over that time? I think anytime, like you tap into a really good point there, Ross, because I think anytime you're scaling a company quickly and bringing in a lot of new people, one of the biggest challenges is to keep the culture. 
mm-hmm. or evolve the culture to where you want it to be, right? And that is really tough because that is a person-by-person decision. That is a person-by-person, how they manifest the culture in the team, in the organization, outside of the company. So that's a really big challenge and requires, I think, a lot of thought for recruiting and good alignment on value. Good. That's a great answer. I love that. I want to ask you something because there's something in our pre-call you talked about that really stood out to me. And there's a lot of things going on in the technology world right now, sometimes in the banking world, where we're seeing people being laid off, right? And that is, like you said, that's an unfortunate part of business. And I think you had mentioned that in 2015, that had impacted you in your career, but it was a seminal moment for you. I know there's probably a lot of people listening who have been either going through that or have gone through that recently. I think it would be amazing to hear that story and hear it directly from you. Yeah, happy to share that one. That certainly brings back some memories. <laughs> it was circa 2015. It was one of the unfortunate boom and busts in Calgary, where the company I was at went from 2,300 people to 500 people. And eventually yeah. you'd find yourself on the wrong list. Yeah. So when it was my time, I found myself on the wrong list. I ended up getting laid off and in the midst of a downturn. And so when that happens in Calgary, it is very much boom and bust. And those are really tight times. And I thought to myself, okay, I need to find a job. I don't have the luxury of not being employed at that point. And so I actually went out and I had seven zero networking coffees with strangers. Wow. Did it pay off? Oh, did it so pay off. So before I get there, I'm just going to probably to tell you and the audience how bad I was at the start. Okay. okay? So I'm an introvert. Right. So this was so outside of my comfort zone. My husband is in sales and marketing. I literally started off Oz with like a little mini script on a piece of paper. Oh man. I would role play it with my husband because I was so uncomfortable. And the first five networking coffees I went to, I was so immersed in the conversation, I forgot to ask for what I was looking for. The next five, I remember to ask, but I chickened out. But by the time I got to 70, I was terrifically good at it. And I will tell you, Oz, I ended up with five open job offers at the same time in a downturn and two of them at a VP level, which was my first VP level role. So these weren't job interviews, though. These were you just opening up the doors and trying to network with people. And you had all that opportunity fall on your plate after it sounds like you got some good reps. What was your opening? How did you get them to take the coffee? Typically, I found if let's say there was somebody in your network and I wanted to work at company XYZ and you and I knew each other, I would say, hey, Oz, I'd love to get some more information and understand the culture of company XYZ. I see you're connected into Gene Smith. Would you mind doing an intro? I'd love to buy her coffee and understand a little bit more about the culture of the organization. I love that. Appreciate you being vulnerable and opening up and telling us about that, okay? A lot of people are going through that now or they've gone through that in the past. They don't know what they do. It's a very lonely moment, lonely thing. In fact, we were talking as a company about two or three months ago when really things were heavy with a lot of technology layoffs. A lot of people in HR were laid off. And we were sitting there and talking about how it's felt like the most loneliest place to be, that when you go on LinkedIn, you say, I've been let go, I'm looking for work, that you don't get a lot of responses or comments because... The company's obviously moved on and gone in a different direction. And a lot of times these agencies and recruiting companies are only able to connect you with a role that they have that's open. And so a lot of times it can feel very lonely. And so I think this is incredible. Now, we did a couple of things where we're hosting a happy hour mixer in New York that's kind of 
disrupt layoffs and we're bringing hiring managers and bringing people who've been laid off to hopefully bring them together. We offer a lot of services in terms of helping people with their resume and interview as much as we can and trying to take care of people in that respect. But there's only so much you can do and it can be a very lonely thing. So thank you so much for sharing that in a moment, but also giving something actionable for people to take away and what to do. I think what you did was super smart. And not only is it smart because you had a good reach out and you got these people to come meet with you and, and learn about you, but also you were smart about how you built your way up, right? And did your research and practice to get to the point where you got five job offers, multiple VP offers, and landed on your feet very quickly. That is an absolutely incredible success story. Yeah, no, thank you. And I will say out of those five opportunities, only one was a posted role. Wow. See, listen, and it really comes down to this. Like, if you're just doing what everybody else is doing, if you're posting the roles that are online, that are open, and you're thinking that's going to be the key strategy, right, to be able to get a role, it's not really what you know. It's who you know. Building these relationships, building these contacts, really, really important. So I love that. I think that's great advice. I hope people who are listening to that are writing that down and give them an opportunity to stand out and land on their feet. So I appreciate you sharing that. One last thing I want to ask you about before we get into the hiring aspect of the pod. So I am fascinated by M&A. Our company's done a lot of work with integrations. We've worked with consultants who are leading integrations. We've hired for integrations. We work with a lot of PE firms who do acquisitions that need to do some level of integration into their company. So I've always been fascinated with this idea of being the due diligence arm, right, in these acquisitions because the people aspect tends to be the toughest aspect, right? The change management you know, financial systems, these things, company to company, you can make that work. But typically it's the bringing one culture and another culture together and maybe different services, different offerings. And that can be where things you know, ultimately are make or break. So you've done a lot of M&A throughout your career. I'm interested, do you have any great stories or horror stories? And you don't need to name names, but I'm just interested in like when something goes wrong from an M&A perspective, is there something that you've learned over time that if somebody's going through it right now or they're doing due diligence that you would recommend? Probably three things. Oh, I love so it. I'm going to start off with, this is actually in the due diligence part. So okay. I would say you cannot underestimate the non-technical due diligence. Mm. Okay. So what do I mean by that? So you've got your standard technical due diligence, you know, how much do they owe? What are their assets? That type of stuff. And that part, typically companies do pretty well. It's pretty much a standard process. And if a company doesn't do it well, you can easily outsource it. But mm -hmm. well, what I mean by the non-technical due diligence is think, for example, imagine you're an ESG company. So you're all about environment, values, et cetera, et cetera. And your strategy is, hey, we're going to go do business in a, in a country that has a really poor record for human rights. The business on paper may make a ton of sense, but what are you doing to your brand? How does doing business, and I'm just going to arbitrarily pick Russia, okay? So how does doing business in Russia stand up with a company that's all about values in ESG? Yeah. That's really difficult to reconcile so that you're impacting your brand, potentially. You're ultimately impacting your bottom line, potentially. And that's even imagining that there is no particular issue that pops up. You guys aren't walking the talk, right? So that would be an example of non-technical due diligence. And the second part is really speaks to your point of, I always think of people, processes, system. People is hands down, I agree with you, the hardest part of that. Because as much as your exec team can come up with a strategy, it requires all leaders throughout the organization to execute that. And that is really difficult. And I think of one particular situation that typically comes to mind on this topic that didn't go well. 
is imagine you've got your parent co and you've got your sub co, right? That was acquired. So parent co, which is typical, is a faster moving company. It has higher expectations, has higher levels of intensity. You have a sub co that was a rounding error in the previous owner's company. So what they did, didn't really matter. Whether they got their numbers in on time, eh, it's rounding, does it matter? So you've got your subco that had the same work structure, didn't really change. There was no change in expectations of when numbers came in the door. And there was no change in benefits. Why does benefits matter here? They had every second Friday off. Parent co did not. If you're a central function and you're having to pull together numbers, which myself and my team did at the time, you've got a complete misalignment of expectations of what good looks like of holding people accountable. If you're off every second Friday, but as your parent couple, you've got your team grinding evenings and weekends, that's going to create a huge recipe for disaster in terms of engagement, in terms of turnover, in terms of results. So that would be the second one. Good advice. Third one is on the IT system side. I've seen this done extraordinarily well, and I've seen it done very poorly. Extraordinarily well typically looks like, in my view, welcome to Parrot Co. Here's your new ERP system. We'll be transitioning it next week. Any other systems you have of materiality, we will be transitioning the week after. What core looks like, in my view, is keep whatever you were using. Mm. And that's sustainable at a certain size. But by the time a company gets really big, what you end up with is an IT hairball. Mm-hmm. And it is really next to impossible to understand and untangle that. And then, then that becomes a massive organizational weakness. So you're a big believer in consolidating the systems and integrating the systems as soon as possible. I agree with you because so much times you see with legacy technology hanging out, we got mainframe over here, we got COBOL over here, we're batching things over here. Right. And you just let it all hang out there. And eventually that technical debt catches up with you and that can become a real problem. It totally does. And then that becomes a multi-million dollar problem. I love it. There's so much knowledge being dropped on this podcast right now from (laughs) finance introverts, amazing podcast guests. Patricia, you're doing it all. Let's get into the hiring aspect here, because what we want to talk about is we want to talk about what makes people who are great at hiring, great at what they do. So you've been involved with, I'm sure, hundreds, if not thousands of hires throughout your career. So I want to start here. What is your overall hiring philosophy? Listen to your gut. Ooh, okay. That's it. That's it. Four words. Listen to your gut. Now, if I was to go down a level deeper than that, I would say be really clear before you even get anybody in the door, before you start looking at resumes, what kind of technical skills and experience do you want? Yep. Then focus on getting an ideal team player. And I can expand on that one because it's a thing. And then no compromise. I look at any good podcast. So I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely listen to your gut, but I like your gut. I'm not sure about the guts of the people on your team. So how do you as a leader make sure that you can trust the hiring capability of your directors, your managers, whoever's on your team so that you know that their intuition is the right one? Because I believe yours is really strong, but I have a hard time being able to quantify if everybody on my team looks at it the same way I do. How do you handle that situation? I think there's a fine balance between trying to provide guidance and minimize mistakes and at the same time, letting people learn and grow. 
mm-hmm. and you often learn and grow by mistakes, as did sure. I, right? Yep. And so typically what I will do is I will start off, if it's somebody, let's say, coming off a CFO role, if it was a VP, they would do the job description and we would talk about what kind of background they were looking for. And I might add in some time in here or there, make some tweaks. I knew we were lined on what kind of experience and skill set. And then, you know, I would typically be the second If it was somebody, let's say a manager, I'm not going to interview the person that the manager is recruiting for. I may or may not have a conversation with that manager, but I certainly would expect their VP too. And I would probably weigh in through the VP. And there was times people got it right and these times people didn't get it right as we all do. And then I think there is a really good debrief with that manager to say, okay, so what are the lessons learned here? And how do you take those lessons the first time? This episode is brought to you by MSH. MSH is an innovative professional services and SaaS organization serving customers ranging from startups to the Fortune 100. A truly global company operating in more than 35 markets across three different continents, MSH partners with their customers to build the teams that solve their biggest and most complex business challenges. Find out more at talentmsh.com. Let me ask you this. I want to dive into the team player aspect a little bit, right? If you haven't been referred to somebody, if you haven't worked with them before, we're usually using these four to five to six interviews that we have to kind of really get into the heart and soul of somebody and what they are and what they're going to be like in our company. So tell me why the team player aspect is important and what do you do in interviews to try to identify if you have a team player or not in front of you? Yeah, so I guess my conceptual framework on the team player is this book by Patrick Lencioni called The Ideal Team Player. Love it. Read it. Great book. Right? Great book. And for the audience, it's like a super short, easy read, right? And so for those that are familiar with it, it's sort of a premise where you want to find an ideal team player, which is an individual that has a relatively equal balance between being hungry, meaning ambitious, Mm -hmm. being humble, and being smart, meaning people smart. Yep. And that those are sort of the key things that if somebody's going to find themselves in some regular challenges on the people front, it's probably because one of those areas is really underdeveloped or one is really overdeveloped. And so, especially right after I read that, I would often try and ask people and I would give them the context and like, and there's no right or wrong answer. I said, if you have to rank those areas of what is your biggest area to your smallest area, what is it? And I will tell you, I would always in my mind play, I guess, a little bit of a a game of if I ask somebody that question, I probably had an idea of either their smallest bucket or their largest bucket. And it will tell you about 90% of the time I was right. And that was kind of me solidifying my read by reading between the lines on, okay, I think so-and-so is not a humble person, right? So what is that going to be like? And then I would ask the question, he would confirm it. And I go, yeah, okay. That was kind of my niggle in the back of my mind that there is some issue there. So that kind of goes back to the listen to your gut. I love that. All right, listen, we got to do this for our audience. We both got to answer this question in terms of buckets, hungry, humble, and smart. I'm going to start. I think hunger is my biggest bucket. Okay, there's relative sizes to these buckets. I would say that people smart is right up there for probably second. And then I believe being humble and humility is very, very important. But of the three, I would probably make that the smallest bucket for me personally. What about you? The smallest meaning that you are... 
relatively speaking, less humble than you are ambitious? So I have a burning desire, right? I'm very motivated by impact. I'm not motivated by money. I'm not motivated by status or fame or any of that stuff. What really matters is that the work that I'm doing is impacting things in a super positive way. That's an infinite type thing. And that keeps me ambitious and hungry day to day. Now, a lot of times the word ambitious can be a double-edged sword. I like to think I play on the good side of that in terms of my desire to make things better for as many people as possible is driven through my ability to impact. So I'm very, very hungry about that. And I guess I would put that as kind of the biggest bucket of mine because I don't see that going away anytime soon. I got big goals. Our company has big goals that we have and we're nowhere close to where we want to be. So that that's a big one, right? People smart. My entire business, what we talk to about our customers, how we advise them is really built on people strategy and people smarts. So my ability to have high EQ, build culture, help learning and develop, do those types of things is something that I read a lot on. I pride myself on. It's something that I've grown in even from two months ago, let alone last decade plus. So that's another area where I think is very strong. And I definitely am somebody who has strong opinions held lightly. I care a lot. I believe in what I believe, but I also do not believe that I have the answer to everything. And so I try to put people around me that augment the areas where are not my biggest strengths. But I also think I'm pretty knowledgeable about what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. I'm pretty self-aware there. So uh, humility is a big part of my tool belt. But I would say the other two are ones that are probably, hopefully, when people think about me, it's the first thing they think about. Whereas the humbleness, I think as they get to know me, maybe they see that, but maybe that's not what they think right off the bat. So did that answer the question? Yeah, it did. And I hate to not be controversial, but my buckets would rank the same. Okay. In terms of, yes, I'm very ambitious. I've got big goals, always have. But I guess what I will add, Oz, is the area I think that has grown and developed most over the last 20-some years has been on people's hearts. Love it. I think back to how I was the first time I managed people and quite frankly, how awful I was to now I think of that as a really big strength of mine and what that journey has been like. I think that's been the one where I've significantly grown and developed the most over the last number of years. And I got to tell you, especially as a financial executive, because I've worked with financial executives, many of which who that wasn't their biggest strength. In fact, I would call that a weakness with many of them. My CFO, who I rave about, Landon, and we talk about him all the time. The thing I love about him, in fact, I think his LinkedIn says this as his kind of his banner headline is people first CFO. And I think that's something that he's always had kind of had intuitively, but he leads through that, but it's so amazing financially. So I just think it's such a weapon is the wrong word, but just such a big tool in your tool belt, especially as a CFO financial executive, to have that people mentality and understand the bottom line implications that come with it. Like you started talking about it a little bit earlier about attrition and bottom line, what does that mean to your company? Long-term recruitment processes, right? Tenure, engagement, like these are all people subjects that ultimately are the difference between you being number one and number 10 in your industry. So I think it's a big, big tool in your tool belt. So I'd love to hear it. A hundred percent. And I would say my version of that in values before dollars. Mm, I love that. Was that something you've always believed or was that more recent? I think it's just inherently how I came out. Right? It's values before dollars. And I think if you follow that, you don't take one of those horrible wrong turns. Because ultimately, whether that's the people values, how you treat your team, whether that's a certain business practice or financial practice, if you come back to values before dollars, and I think that is your gut on not making the wrong turn. 
I love that. And we call that here long-term greedy. And really what we're thinking about there is there's a lot of shortcuts and short-term ways to make a buck here or make 10K here, whatever it may be. And we are going to avoid that if it doesn't line up with who we are and what our ethics and what our values are. We're going to invest in the relationship. We're going to do the right thing. And we know that more often than not, that's going to pay off tenfold. And so that's always been kind of our strategy as a company. I love that. Values before dollars. I'm going to write that down. I might use it. You might hear that from me in another podcast or on LinkedIn or something like that. So I appreciate that. I want to ask you about a memorable interview experience. Bad, good. You don't have to name names. But if I ask you about a memorable interview experience, either one you were interviewing or you were interviewing somebody else, what comes to mind? I'm going to go with one where I and the director reporting to me were the interviewers. And this one, talk about sort of making mistakes along the way. This was one of those on my end for sure. So I was a VP at the time. I had a director reporting to me and we were hiring for a manager of a particular niche area. And it was one that really required a lot of soft skill to be successful. So we had been reviewing and recruiting for six months and no luck. So the director interviews an individual and then it came to me as the second interviewer. In that hour-long meeting, he was condescending. He was arrogant, presumptuous. And by the end, I just came back with such a negative impression. I then debriefed with the director and she had the same view. And so we're like, okay, like, no. Despite he had a great resume on paper, he had an amazing reference, the CEO of a large company in Calgary, like fantastic. So I'm like, gosh, like, is there anything we're collectively not seeing? Is it just a personal style difference? Anyway, so we parked that. Three more months go by. So at this point, we've been looking for nine months. And we thought, you know what? He got the right skill set. How bad can he be? So we hired him. I know, Oz, I know. I already know where this is going. You're right. We hired him. And literally the first week, I was getting negative feedback on the individual as with the director. Obviously, he ultimately was terminated, but not without a lot of stress, not without a lot of damage control for the director and for me. And that, to me, was really the solidification or the canonization of listen to your gut. That happens, right? So I'm going to segue into my next question because this might be part of it. When you miss on somebody, is it because you get a little bit desperate about the role or you're getting different feedback from other places and you're not trusting your gut? Like if you miss on somebody, we all miss on people from time to time. If you can look back, what's the theme? So we've already talked about not listening to your gut, but I would say Going back a layer deeper is there's often some small yellow flags, right? Nothing that's glaring. Like this was glaring mistake, clearly. But there's some small yellow flags. So for example, somebody saying, hey, you know, I really love to spend my evenings and weekends doing X. I'm hiring for a hyper growth, hyper scaling company where, again, as we've talked about, typically has more hours and more stress than normal. That inherently is a bit of a flag to say, is this work-life balance going to be the right fit for the individual and the right fit for the company? So that would be an area where now I would know enough to like dig into that. Yeah. If your ears prick up or you get that feeling, that's something that you got to unwind a little bit. And listen, it's not right. about bad or good. It's it. 
Right. It's fit. It's a hundred percent fit, right? It's not to say that that's not a good lifestyle. I would love that lifestyle actually, but I'd say one of the things I'm very transparent about what it's like to work at the company I'm at. And I will volunteer the good, bad, and I. Let's dig into that a little bit because I think that realistic yeah. job preview is something that leads to candidates making mistakes in terms of the jobs that they take. So how do you do that? How do you articulate to them, right? When is the right timing? What do you tell them? Because you don't want to just put puppy dogs and lollipops so that when they come there, they start to see the bad stuff like, man, I was totally rope-a-doped here. How do you give them an understanding of what's good and what's bad or what they're going to have to be able to adapt to for the organization that you're hiring for? I'm extremely transparent. A, it's my style. But B, I always take it from the standpoint of the more transparent and the better information I can give you as a candidate and you give me as the hiring manager, the better decisions we can both collectively make together. So I will just volunteer it. I will say, you know, here's some of the great things about working here. Here's some of the challenges. Here's are some of the things that we're trying to work on. And a compliment that I always appreciate is what's an individual has worked for the company for three months, six months, I'll often ask them, so what surprised you? Is this kind of what you thought you were getting into? And typically the answer is, yeah, this is kind of what I thought, right? Because we try and be overboard on the transparency just to minimize the bad decision on either part. Yeah, I totally believe in that as well. I think you have to be self-aware as a manager and as an organization, and you need to share that up front. So that people know what they're walking into. I don't think I really ever had a situation where somebody said, I didn't see this coming because good, bad, and ugly, we're going to share what we think this place is. And if you're a fit for that, that's amazing. But if not, that's okay too. I'd rather find out early on in the process or pre-offer than six months in. A hundred percent. And the other thing I would do, Oz, is I will share my perspective on what I think I'd like to work for or with. But then I will also say like, look, here's some members of my team, like go kick my tire. I'm not going to ask them what you guys talk about. This is your opportunity to ensure that as a people leader, I'm going to be a good fit for you. I love that. Some would think that maybe I take this a step too far, but my tenure of my direct reports, I've got a 11-year person, an 11-year person, a 10-year person, a five-year person, a six-year person, and then a couple of people that have started in the last couple of years for really big roles for us. But one of the things that I've always done is I've shared a document on who I am. And what I'm about, and it's not that some of these things don't evolve and I've had to update it and change it from time to time, but here are the things that drive me nuts. Here are the things that I love. Here's the way I communicate. Here are the things like, and that's actually been a good, people sometimes look at it like, are you serious? You're giving me this? And it's like, I just want to prime you for what this is. And hopefully it's something that is informative and helps you. But also I know that I'm imperfect in a lot of ways. And so I try to capture that in here and say, this is something I'm working on, but this has been kind of my experience in an area that I want to get better in and, and let people know that. And for the most part, that level of transparency has been much appreciated. And like I said, the tenure has been pretty good. Maybe it's working okay. Last hiring question for me. Do you have a favorite question that you like to ask? I know we talked about the hungry, humble, and smart, but is there any other questions that you really like to ask in an interview? Tell me what kind of culture is important for you to do your best work. Mm. Have you gotten really interesting answers out of that? Sometimes. Sometimes there may be a balance of how involved or not involved direct supervisor is. There's been either the odd individual that is like basically clear. It's like, don't reach out to me. I'll tell you if there's a problem. And more or less working in their own little silo, which doesn't really work. But yeah, I mean, I find that that's an interesting one. Before I will weigh in and share anything about the organization, sure, I want to hear from them so that information is not skewed or yeah, set up. Yeah. yeah, I'm with you. These candidates out here, they're sharp. They know what they're doing. 
great info. I want to ask you a couple more things. So I know you recently transitioned out of NextSeed this past February. I know you've been having some conversations around some board of director roles. Why does that appeal to you? Have you been on boards before? Why is that work exciting? Is that the right level of involvement and engagement for you? Why is that something that you've pursued and that you enjoy doing? So I've actually been on the Board of Arts Commons, which is Canada's third largest art organization since 2018. So I've been on the Finance Committee, and now I've recently transitioned to the Governance and Compensation Committee. So it's something, you know, I'm pretty passionate about board work, board governance, Typically, a CFO, that's been a really big part of my responsibilities is everything board-related. And what I appreciate about those conversations is it's the strategy, it's the big picture, it's the oversight, it's how do you help the organization, based on your experience, make some fine-tuning, potentially, on how they're thinking about a particular challenge. And so... All of those things I'm really passionate about. I've had the pleasure and the opportunity to work with some really fabulous boards in my career and certainly been able to learn from some of the best. So when I think about my next chapter, where I see that is really a portfolio of various publicly traded board roles and filling in with some business advisory work. I love that. I should have known that art was a big part of your life. Look how well appointed your background is. Are those zippers on the wall back there? Yes, they're actually leather tiles attached with zippers. That is incredible. I got a glass wall back here. I just, I'm so lacking right now. We got to step our art game up, Jackie. So I got to ask you, you're working in these high growth environments. Yeah. You're working at these unicorns. You're doing board work. When you are finding yourself with free time, how do you spend your time? How do you enjoy it? Well, I'm obsessed with this workout class called Legree. It's the hardest workout I've ever done. It's a form of resistance training. So it's that, anything design-related, love that. Outdoor power walking with my dog and girlfriends. I love it. I know Calgary gets as much sun as Florida, but do you ever find yourself down in South Florida? <laughs> a lot of the things you're interested in, we have down here. Well, I have, actually. I did interview for a company uh, a number of years ago in Florida, and... That would have been a second story on an interview gone wrong. <laughs> Didn't go well? <laughs> no. What was the issue? It started off really well. I had a quick Zoom call with the CFO. It was for senior VP finance. And he asked me about how do I hire people well? And so I referenced the Patrick Lezioni book, Ideal Team Player. And I then went down, made the short list. And by that time, he had actually read the book which was great. I'm like, okay, so you've actually taken another perspective and you've actually spent the time to go read it. As you may have remembered from reading the book, it gives you a bunch of sample questions on how do we dig in to find out in a more indirect way where somebody's weak spots are or develop strengths. And so his question to me was, tell me about a time when you were last embarrassed. I'm like, okay, fine, I can do that. So I had one, unfortunately, top of mind where it was Sunday night, my Sunday night routine is like facial mask. So I had one that was bright purple and fully about an inch thick. Doorbell rings, nobody in my household answers. Doorbell rings again. I'm like, oh, seriously, somebody's got to go down and answer that door. I knew my daughter was having her friend over. So I thought, like, it's no big deal. Teenage girls, they'll understand. But I opened the door and the dad of the girl who I'd never met before is there. 
Oh boy. And I've got this bright purple dripping mask. And so the best thing I could do was put my hand out and introduce myself. So that was the story I told the TFO, which was fine. And, you know, it seems we're going well. And, but then we get to lunch. At lunch, he orders for me. He's like, oh, Patricia, we'll have X, Y, and Z for lunch, which I was really appalled at. That had never happened. And then he did all the talking at lunch, typically with his mouth open. Yeah. And by the time that lunch was done, I was like, absolutely positively not. I do not want that job. Wow. So that's why I'm not a neighbor of yours in Florida. Well, man, we could have been neighbors <laughs> if not for this CFO with his mouth chewing. Yeah. All right, here's the deal. Here's the lesson for all you hiring leaders out there. Candidate experience is important. Don't order for the person and certainly close your mouth when you chew. We're learning a lot today. Last question I got for you, okay? You've had an expansive career. We've talked about what you've done throughout your career. I'm interested to know if you have one nugget of career advice that you'd offer somebody that's maybe early on in their career that maybe you didn't know at the time, but that you know now. I know you've said trust your gut. I know you've given us hungry, humble, and smart. You've talked about three different ways of integration. You've given us a lot. I'm going to ask for one more thing, Patricia. What's one bit of advice you give somebody early in their career? Be your authentic self. And I think back to myself a number of years ago, I was always very professional, but I think that maybe subconsciously meant to me, don't bring my full self to the role. And what I've learned over time is by bringing your full self to the role, whether that's being humble and telling a story that may not put yourself in the best light or being transparent, what it does allow, I have found, is deeper connections, deeper connections with your teammates, deeper connections with your peer group, and people then coming to advice because you'll know, because they know that you will be completely transparent and bring all your perspectives to the table in conversation. I really love that. And you have been your absolute authentic self throughout this podcast. So I love to see that you're living the words that you live by. I really appreciate you coming on, Patricia. We're excited to have you in the future. Patricia, thanks so much for the time. Have a great one. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.